welcome to City Break Ideas, episode 13. Welcome especially if you're new to City Breaks. I think often on the City Break Ideas episodes, we have indeed got some new people joining us. So that's lovely. Hello there. I'm Marion Jones. Three weeks out of four, I'm to be found running City Breaks podcasts, where I go on a relatively leisurely tour of the cities I've enjoyed visiting, London, Florence, Paris, St. Petersburg, that sort of thing, and look behind the scenes and ferret out the history and the culture that it would be good to know before you visit the city, so that when you get there, you're well informed and you know what you're looking at. Anyway, on the fourth week, along comes City Break Ideas, which I use as an opportunity to have a look at what other bloggers and travel writers are doing, pick out some that I really enjoy, and produce an episode where we have a little look at some of what they've got to offer. I hope I'll inspire you to go have a look at what they're doing. Because in the few minutes that I've got to talk about each of the three of today's guests and their work, there really isn't time to do it justice. So if you're interested in finding out much, much more, use the links which I'll put at the end of the podcast notes to find the actual websites and go exploring. Trust me, I think you'll find it's worth it. Before we get going, just a quick hello to Jane from AbFab Travels. You may remember we covered her website last time. And she contacted me afterwards and said, Oh, really enjoyed the podcast. Thank you for making my site sound so interesting. There's modesty for you. I only pick sites which are interesting. Anyway, she went on to say, I really love the way you bring your own experience to the blog post too, so that it almost feels like a conversation. I'm almost inspired, she says, to try making a podcast myself. Good, go for it. Unfortunately, she's then put joking in brackets, so maybe she doesn't mean it. I can only say that, frankly, if I can do it, anybody can. I might be the world's least technical person. My poor husband, who's relied upon for technical backup, really quite frequently, would attest to this. So, without further ado, let's see what there is to enjoy this month. I'm going to start with Stefan and Ellie, who run the BarclaySquareBarbarian.com travel blog, and who, in their own words, blog about everything that's fun. London, travel, food, culture and whatever else we come across. They're London-based, but neither is actually a Londoner, or indeed a Brit. Stefan hails from Germany, and Ellie from New Zealand, but they've been in London for, I believe it's 14 years, and they say they're here to stay. And just to give you a flavour of them and their website, here's an introduction from, I think, the homepage, where, I think it's Stefan writing it, they use their pseudonyms, Mr B and Mrs B. Whenever Mr. B tries to talk Mrs. B out of booking another crazy trip and suggests hiking in the Cotswolds instead, or just having a quiet time in, Mrs. B likes to remind Mr. B of the great trip she went on before she met him, and which included hot air balloon ride over the pyramids, quad bike ride through the Wadi Rum Desert, and visits to the ancient ruins in Petra and Troy, thus ever so gently implying that her life has already slowed down a lot and shouldn't be allowed to turn into complete dullness. There are lots of different sections on the website. There's the art and culture one, for example, with about 50 posts, gallery visits, concert reviews, mainly London-based. I'm imagining it's been a little curtailed of late, what with the pandemic and all, but definitely somewhere you could check regularly if you're going to be in London and just thinking, what's on at the moment that I might like to go and see? A big section is devoted to food, 180 posts, no less. And I went browsing on that for an example and soon hit upon the area of Paris known as Le Marais, which they say is their favourite district and might possibly be mine too. 
They give a little bit of context. We love the relaxed, laid-back, bohemian atmosphere of the Marais, with its many young people and hip fashion shops. They mention a couple of things that you might do there, such as going to the Picasso Museum, located, as they remind us, in the beautiful 17th-century Hotel Salé, or maybe you'll pop into the Marché des Enfants Rouges for a visit. Now, I was intrigued by that, because I know the Marais quite well, but that isn't somewhere I've been to yet. I had a vague idea it was a market, but actually I get a lot more detail from this. It's a deluxe food market, about which Time Out apparently wrote that it will, quote, fill the emptiest of stomachs and empty the fullest of wallets. They explain why it's actually called The Children in Red, that being because there was a nearby orphanage, closed a long time ago, I think, where the children were dressed in red uniforms. As regular listeners will know, I always like a bit of history and background culture, but of course we want to know what to expect if we go there today. And they tell us that too. There are lots of pictures giving the feel of a lively, crowded food market that look really popular, so I will certainly be putting that on my must-go-see list next time I'm in Paris. But then on to the restaurant reviews. They've picked out three or four restaurants to mention, and actually I quite like the idea that not every comment is totally favourable. They cite one popular takeaway, for example, and they suspect that the queues are long because the service is quite slow, and the restaurant quite likes that because it makes them look very popular. Anyway, on to the things they did like. One of their favourites, they say, is a restaurant called, in French, Langevin, so that's Lange, L-apostrophe-A-N-G-E, Angel, Vin, the number 20, where, says Stéphane, I absolutely adored my duck breast. Only the French know how to get this 100% right, and these guys certainly do. Quite a lot of detail about what they actually ate and what they thought about each part, and lots of great photos, certainly enough to give you the idea that you do, stroke, maybe don't, want to go there. And that's what you want from a restaurant review, isn't it? A completely different section is labelled Fun, 89 posts there, all kinds of mad things, balloon rides, zip lining, Stefan went on a boxing training session, deep sea fishing, caving, and a recent post where he did a driving course at the London Rally School. He got to try handbrake turns and power turns, whatever they are. He tells us that, quote, It was an exhilarating experience to slide around the yard, throwing up dust. And if you want lots more detail about the other scary things he got up to, and to see some pictures, go find. Another section, travel, also 80 plus posts, some quite exotic things like a month in Papua New Guinea, a visit to Bhutan and Nepal, a trip to the Portugal Valley of Douro, and enticingly, and just to show variety, a section labelled Secret Berkshire. Naturally, I was intrigued to see what the posts on cities were, and I found a whole variety of interesting things. Not only had they been to, let's say, Venice, Strasbourg and Tokyo, they'd done specific things there that were very much worth writing about in a bit more detail. They went to a masked ball in Venice, for example. Strasbourg, what else but a gourmet food tour? And in Tokyo, a visit to a robot restaurant. But for today particularly, I wanted to focus on yet another section, which is London. A whole area to itself and regularly updated. If you're listening regularly, you will know that we are bang in the middle of City Breaks London. I think there have been 13 episodes to date and about the same number still to come. So I was intrigued to see what's on this website that I haven't covered, didn't know about. And there was quite a lot. And I picked out three areas just to mention in a little bit more detail.
The first is an idea for a visit to something called the Garden at 120, which is actually at 120 Fenchurch Street in the City of London. The largest rooftop in London and one that you can climb for no cost at all on, as they've written on the website, a first-come, first-served basis. They make it sound very easy and very interesting. You simply rock up, they write. Enjoy the art installation on the ground floor, go through an airport-like security check, and then make your way to the lifts, which will take you right up to the 15th floor. The art installations, I think, vary. When Ellie and Stefan went, it was psychedelic rotating flowers on multiple levels. Not something you see every day, but I think from what they've written, the big thing really is getting up to the top and the wonderful views that you would get. As they point out, there are other tall buildings you can climb, the Shard, for example. But this one, they say, is great because you are up close to and get some really unusual angles on fabulous sites like Leadenhall Market and the Lloyd's Building. So there you go. If you're in the city, perhaps visiting St Paul's or doing a little tour of Wren churches, here's another idea for something else you can do that you might not have thought of. I was intrigued too by a reference to a pub called Ye Old Mitre in Hoburn, which I also don't know, although perhaps that's because, as I think it's Stefan has written, it's London's best hidden pub. A building, in fact, which can trace its history right back to 1546. And as you know, I'm a bit of a sucker for history and going somewhere that's been there for centuries. And this one does sound, and look from the photos on the website, absolutely beautiful. An oak panelled facade outside, dark leaded stained glass windows, and some little snippets of history to keep your interest up. We are told, for example, that in the 16th century, a five-day feast was held here, attended by Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon, the Lord Mayor of London, and a lot of other noble guests who wanted to go hobnobbing with them. An event for which the original shopping list still survives. We know what they consumed, and it's quite a list. 25 cows, 125 pigs, 100 sheep, 444 pigeons, that is a very precise number, is it not? And 340 larks, and 156 swans, the latter having been donated by Henry himself. I think it's actually still a fact that all the swans on the Thames are owned by the reigning monarch. They were Henry's to pluck out, have killed, and served as a treat for his guests. Or, of course, he could have left them simply enjoying life on the river. But I don't think thinking of others was really Henry's thing. So, the mitre. Easily findable in Hoburn, in central London. Being a pub, anyone can walk in. Stefan appears to have gone at around 4pm one afternoon, where, as he put it, the majority of guests were elderly gentlemen who seemed to have merged with the furniture. But he tells us, too, that later on the place filled up with office workers, tradesmen and some tourists. And then thirdly, from the London section, I did want to mention again all the reviews of exhibitions, galleries, concerts and, particularly, restaurants. If you want to know what Rowley's restaurant is like if you're a steak lover, if you want to find a Peruvian restaurant in Fitzrovia, wondering where the best brunches in London are to be had, there are reviews to tell you all those things and lots, lots more. And I picked out just one to mention in particular, their favourite restaurant, A Wong where they had an absolute feast. Shanghai steamed dumplings with, and I'm reading this, so I expect it's a thing, ginger-infused vinegar. These dumplings being filled with soup, so you have to eat them whole. A helpful advice includes don't bite bits off. 
lots more different sorts of dumplings, all described in detail, some wild mushroom and truffle steamed buns, and, possibly as pudding, but I'm not sure, quote, the chef's world-famous duck yolk custard buns. Perfect. Apparently Jay Rayner called them the world's best dessert. Ah yes, a pudding indeed. A cocktail which is described as outrageously good, the contents being Malibu, mango, coconut and chilli barbecued pineapple. And as mentioned earlier, if Stefan and Ellie don't like something very much, they do say so. So when you get a restaurant review that's this good, you're only really left thinking, I have to go there and try that. So in summary then, a great website, really good for ideas for things to do in London, a good site if you're looking for some of those all-action experiences and not quite sure which ones are to be recommended, and certainly, certainly, a website to attract foodies. There's so much more than I've had time to mention, particularly lots of the far-flung travel that they've done, so do go and have a look. And thank you, Ellie and Stefan, for allowing me to snoop around your website and talk about it in public. Okay, someone else who was up for that challenge is Marion, who runs the lovetravellingblog.com, where one of the first sentences that I came across was the following. Travel diaries, providing inspiration for planning the perfect trip. And as I dived a bit deeper into it, that is exactly what I found. Quite a lot of where Marion herself has been and what she did, along with all the sorts of details that you want to know if you're actually thinking, I quite fancy doing the same. As Marion says, she's an independent traveller. She does all her own research, libraries, travel guides, looking online, reading tips from other bloggers. And then when she's returned from wherever it was, she writes it all up in a way that's really easy to read, accessible, and makes you think, yeah, I could do that. Here she is explaining her passion for travel. Quote, I just love visiting new places, immersing myself into local cultures of life around the world and discovering the unexpected. And then came a sentence that I absolutely resonated with. I didn't set foot on foreign soil until the age of 13 on a school holiday to the Black Forest in Germany, travelling by coach and ferry. I adored everything about that first trip, from the little things like driving off the ferry on the other side of the road, the strange money and the language. And I knew that from that day on, I wanted to explore as many different countries as time and money would allow and to experience local cultures firsthand. Yes, yes, that took me right back to the 1970s, when I was also 13, and went on my first trip abroad, also a school trip, to Alsace in France, as it happens, not that far from the Black Forest, and I felt exactly the same. There really was a place called abroad, and I could go and explore it. I enjoyed a rather modest pair of sentences at the end of the blog, which read as follows. I recently won an international travel blog contest and my prize was a four-day visit to the Finnish city of Tampere. I do apologise if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. My Finnish is a bit non-existent. Back to what Marion wrote. Since returning from there, I've been privileged to take on the role of international ambassador to promote tourism in Western Finland. So you can hear we're listening to someone who knows what they're talking about. Lots and lots of sections on this website too the UK, Asia, Northern Europe, Southern Europe, North America. Drilling down a little in the Southern Europe section, for example, there are nine different countries. Think Italy, Gibraltar, Turkey, etc. And then a level below that, in Italy, six different places treated, including Florence and Rome, Bergamo, Sicily. 
Lots on the UK too. There's London. There are all four countries of the UK. So Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, plus England divided into separate areas, southwest, etc. And about which Marion writes, As well as overseas travel, I'm a firm supporter of the British Isles. From dynamic cities to rural towns and villages, from seaside resorts to national parks, there's so much I enjoy about Great Britain. Again then, an absolute wealth of things to choose from. Where would I pick? I decided to have a look at one far-flung destination, about which I know absolutely nothing, and one, quite a lot nearer to home, about which I do know a little more. First then, off to Singapore. Marin went on a nine-day trip, and the report is written up in diary format, so day one, day two, etc. And I think it would be great reading if you were thinking you were going on a longish trip to Singapore and wanted to know how much you could pack into however long you're going for. But equally, if you're doing one of those more stopover trips, I know people do sometimes go on the way, let's say, to Australia, for example, you'd be able to read through all the days and think, which of those things would I most like to be doing? As well as lots of detailed information about where Marion went and what she saw and what she thought about it, there's lots of incidental detail which actually be dead handy if you were thinking of going yourself. Transport details, stuff about where she stayed and where she ate. All those little details that you're never quite sure about if you're going somewhere very new to you. So, for example, about the dress code in a temple that she visited, where, yes, ladies are required to cover up arms and legs, but don't worry, shawls are provided for that purpose if you need to borrow one. I also enjoyed her description of the boat timetable from Singapore out to one of the little islands. Boats don't run to a timetable. They depart when fully occupied with 12 passengers which somehow tells you something you need to know, but also just gives you a flavour of the atmosphere of the place. I always think when you go somewhere new that it's interesting to think about what you're going to do on that very first exciting morning or evening after arrival, and what you're going to do just before you leave as a last fling. So I had a look at what Marion had to say about that. On the first day, she went to City Hall Station and had a wander past the Raffles Hotel, where you can drink a Singapore sling cocktail for a mere $29, and on into a food court to have a first go at trying what there was to eat. Quote, We kept it simple on our first night, with dishes of chicken fried rice and nasi goreng, two roti canai, that's the delicious flatbread, and a bottle of tiger beer each. We walked along the waterfront to view the Merleon statue, half mermaid, half lion, which is the emblem of Singapore and we admired the waterfront skittyscape of Marina Bay. You can just imagine yourself there, can't you? What about the last evening then? Well, quote, We decided to eat at Lao Passat in downtown. We chose a roasted duck set meal, served with a clear broth and rice. And after that, we went to see the Gardens by the Bay light show. And in between those things, all sorts of visits to Chinatown, on the Singapore flyer, which is a sort of big wheel, London Eye type thing, to Little India, the Botanical Gardens, the zoo, trips out of the city too, to Sentosa Island, where you can go on cable car rides and see lots of monkeys, for Forest Walk, the McCritchie Trail, and a second walking trail on a smaller island. So really a sense that you can have a very varied couple of weeks. That was a bit of a list, so here's a little bit of detail about the Little India section of the city, for example. She describes being surrounded by, quote, the sights and sounds of India itself, 
with the pungent aroma of spices drifting past, and little shops selling their wares out on the pavements, colourful displays of fruit, vegetables and red chilies. Of an outdoor cafe in the Botanical Gardens, she writes about the seating under hibiscus-covered terraces with large colonial-style rattan fans. Of tables with starched white cloths and little vases of fragrant orchids. I read that and I was right back in a Somerset Morn novel. And then there are lots of little details of things that you only learn when you go somewhere. For example, I sampled fried carrot cake. This neither contains carrots nor is a cake. It's actually a type of omelette with a fried radish. Well, who knew? I've skimmed over so much of the detail, but I do think the Singapore Post would be really handy if you were thinking of going, not sure if you'd like it or not, wanted some details about what you could actually do when you got there, or wanted some more practical information about how things work. And by way of a contrast, I thought I'd have a look at a post about somewhere a lot nearer to home, or at least that's the case if your home's in the UK, and that's Italy. So Marion's got quite a selection of Italian posts. There's the weekend in Florence, there's a four-day trip to Rome, a six-day Easter trip to Venice, visits to Sicily and to Pisa. But it was the one on Bergamo and Milan that I picked out. They're both places I've been quite close to, perhaps on the way to the Italian lakes, but haven't actually seen. Both towns intrigue me in different ways, both seem to be possible City Break series ideas. So I thought I'd have a look. So, to set the scene, quote, Bergamo's old town is a delight. Narrow, cobbled streets with beautiful old churches set in majestic squares. Interesting small shops selling local produce line the roads alongside pizzerias and restaurants. At the far end of the old town, there's a funicular up to the tiny hilltop village of San Vigilo. So far, so enticing. What about Milan? Well, we get a description of the station itself, with its ornate hall with a large curved roof adorned with frescoes and chandeliers, and so immediately you know you're not in any old city. Chandeliers at the railway station, no less. So this post is actually quite a contrast to the Singapore one, because I think I'm right in saying that Marion actually only spent a day, it was a day trip to Milan. So it's an interesting little look at the sort of thing you can get up to if that's all the time you've got. She went to the cathedral, of course. She went to the next-door Galleria shopping centre, which, quote, must rank as one of the most beautiful shopping arcades in the world, filled with high-end stores including Armani and Louis Vuitton. She obviously didn't get sucked in for hours because there was a coffee and cake stop, there was a visit to the famous opera house, La Scala, and to a castle. And here again, it was the little details that made me feel I was actually getting an idea of what Milan would be like and could decide for myself whether I wanted to visit or not. Marion writes, for example, about a ride on one of Milan's delightful old trams with its highly polished wooden seats, and she reminisces about an evening meal of mozzarella and anchovy pizzas. I did have a quick look, too, at the Weekend in Florence post. I know Florence quite well, of course, because that was the first city that City Breaks did a series on, and I thought that Marion had done a good job of picking out all the must-see things, conveying the atmosphere, illustrating it with lovely photos that brought the whole thing back to me. So there's lots and lots on this site. I think it'd be fair to say it does have quite a city break slant. Just in the UK, there's Edinburgh and Belfast and London. In Europe, there's Prague and Tallinn, Helsinki, Dublin, Riga, Amsterdam. A clutch of German cities, four Polish cities, Oslo, Moscow, Stockholm. In short, stacks and stacks of ideas for city breaks, and indeed, 
for me to use for City Break series. Watch this space. And that, of course, is without mentioning at all the Asia section, the New York section, etc, etc. As with all three of these websites today, my advice really is, go find. And that brings me on to the third website I want to cover today, one with a rather intriguing title, thirstyjourneys.com. Hosted by Darlene from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, who explains, quote, For me, travel is something I need in my life. Part escape, part adventure, part exploration, part personal fulfilment. Yes, I can identify with that. She too has been all over. Africa, Asia, Australia, Europe, the Middle East, the UK. They're all featured. I do enjoy the way the UK gets a mention alongside Asia and Europe. And for a little bit more of the flavour of this website, how about this? I want to share the things we've learned in our travels and highlight some of the incredible things we've seen and done. I know that there are a lot of people who want to travel but haven't taken the leap yet for whatever reason. Hopefully I can inspire and encourage those people to just do it. No more excuses. And this too is a website in various sections, two of them intriguingly called Drinks Around the World and Boozy Tours and Tastings. So although there are plenty of places to come, more about those in a minute, it's got its own little flavour. Ho-ho, spot the pun. The Drinks Around the World section, for example, promises, quote, descriptions and reviews of all the weird, wild and wonderful tipples we've tried from our travels. There are a dozen or so so far, including, for example, a liqueur called, I think I do know how to pronounce this, Slivovice, which, don't you know, thanks to Darlene for explaining, is Czech for plum brandy, a drink often made at home. It's quite common to have fruit trees in the garden, you pick the fruit and off you go. The advantage being that you can get a much higher alcohol content 50 to 52 percent apparently, than the stuff you can buy commercially. So as with all the posts in this section, a little bit of information, a little bit of history, and then often a review of particular versions. Here, for example, the Rudolf Jelinek company, dating from 1894, who produced not just plum brandy, but also used cherries, pears, apricots, apples, and a whole lot more. Plum vodka, absinthe, honey liqueur, gin, whiskey. And, says Darlene, Quote, if you really want to get crazy, why not look for their more unusual liqueurs, such as sea buckthorn, blackberry, quince, and so forth. Their mind boggles. You'll find out how it's made, what it tastes like, where you can buy it in Canada, presumably by extension also elsewhere, and generally educate yourself in an area that possibly you're not quite as expert in as Darlene herself. The boozy tours and tasting section is more about trips that she's actually been on in countries as varied as France, Portugal, Australia, Germany, to tour around and obviously taste various alcohols such as wine, absinthe, whiskey, and generally fill us in. The example that I picked out to talk about is the visit to the Jameson Whiskey, that's whiskey with an E of course, distillery in Ireland, where you can read the history of the company, which dates from 1740. You can get details of what will happen if you go on a tour there, what it's like to taste some of their products, lots of pictures giving you a real good feel for what the place is actually like, plus a few little details that you're going to want to know, how much does it all cost, where would you find out more, that sort of thing. If tippling your way around the world is your thing, I don't think there's a better place to start than here. But there's a big destination section as well, eight main sections to that, think Africa, Australia, Europe, 
Middle East, etc. I decided to home in again on one place in Europe and one place much further away. So starting with Spain, there are posts on Barcelona, but I plumped for the one on Malaga to talk about today, because all I really know about Malaga is that people fly there and then go off somewhere else. And so I was intrigued to find out more, and I could identify with one of the opening lines on the post which says, Malaga, Spain, is one of those cities that initially seems rather nondescript, even forgettable. But the second you start to explore its nooks and crannies, you find a very surprising, even unusual, Spanish city. Exploring the post, I could certainly imagine spending a break actually in Malaga, but I also understand the temptation perhaps to add it on as a couple of days at one end or other of your trip if you're going somewhere else in Spain as well. There's a post labelled Top 10 Things to Do. Again, lots of pictures to give you a flavour, to show you what you'd be seeing. Some detail on places to visit. As is common in particularly in Andalusian cities, you get that intertwining of cultures, the Arabic, the Roman and the Christian. If you followed the City Breaks Seville series that I did, you'll perhaps remember some examples of that from Seville. And Darlene gives for Malaga places you can visit for each of those traditions. I enjoyed her description of the cathedral, particularly how Spanish is this, reminded me of Barcelona. The cathedral is absolutely stunningly beautiful, but it's not yet finished because the funds ran out in, wait for it, 1782. Lots of ideas for other things that you can do in the city. Visit the port and the lighthouse, various museums of art and fashion and cars, parks and gardens, the beach, and a special mention to the food. As Darlene says, we had some particularly memorable meals in Malaga. How about this as a mouth-watering example? I ordered a goat cheese salad with walnuts. This is what they brought me. Spinach, walnuts, sunflower and pumpkin seeds, a quarter of a golden apple, an entire round of goat cheese, some fried pizza, and topped with bean sprouts, all drizzled with balsamic vinegar. It was so crazy good, I couldn't believe it. And yes, she's included a very droolsome picture to illustrate. And that's just one example. There are lots more ideas of things that she also enjoyed eating. There's a second post on Malaga called Visiting During La Noche en Blanco, which I think is the Spanish equivalent of a sleepless night. Don't think traffic noise and chaos. Think festivals, music, art and culture till very late at night. All the museums are free that night. The streets are decorated as if for a party. There's some lovely pictures of streets decorated with balloons and fairy lights. There's street theatre. There are musical performances. Darlene, for example, saw an award-winning concert pianist playing outside in front of the cathedral. One, if I can say his name without mangling it, Juan Pablo Gamaro. And it just sounded like a really fun evening. All the better, in fact, because I don't think she knew the festival was on. It just happened to be. Those are often the moments you end up enjoying the most, aren't they? OK, so, so much for Spain. And as a second post from Darlene's website, we're off to Tokyo. Tokyo, you may be thinking, if you heard last month's City Break Ideas episode. We've been there. Yes, we have. But we haven't been to one particular place which I homed in on, which in fact had been intriguing me, but which I didn't quite somehow ever get to. I was a little bit reluctant, really. And so I was really intrigued to read a post about a maid cafe in Tokyo. I'd never heard of them before I got to Tokyo. And since I didn't go, I didn't really get any wiser. So I was very grateful to read that Darlene was a bit more courageous. She decided she would go and she wrote all about it so that the rest of us can find out and perhaps decide whether on another occasion 
we would or wouldn't do the same. So, quite rightly, she starts with a little explanation with people who've no idea what a maid cafe actually is. Here's what she writes. Maid cafes got their start in Japan. It's a rather strange phenomenon where the servers dress up in maid costumes, a subset of cosplay restaurants where the waiting staff dress as different anime or video game characters. I'm already thinking this really reminds me of Japan, where so often I really just wasn't quite sure what on earth was going on. But don't worry, there's more explanation to follow. So Darlene went to one of these cafes in the Shibuya district of Tokyo, and she says it was a bit like being in an 80s-style video game. You'll be pleased to know that there are rules, no underage drinking, for example, or smoking, and everybody should show respect for the maids, and indeed the other customers. If you're wondering what actually happens when you get there, here's Darlene to the rescue. This is all about the kitschy cosplay and cutesy food shaped like a Saturday morning cartoon animal. If you like to be left alone while waiting for your food, you could forget about that here. The hostesses are here to entertain you and keep you busy while your food is being prepared. She describes how theirs started, helpfully enough exchanging a few words with them, teaching them a little Japanese, but then she sneaked up behind them and put bunny ears on them. And that, just as the food was arriving, was when things started to get a little weird. Quote, Our hostess wouldn't let us eat. First, she had to do a little song and dance. We had to chant Mo Mo Kyun and make a heart symbol with our hands. Apparently the chant comes from an anime meme and can't really be translated. But the impression is a magical spell to make the food taste better or imbue you with good feelings. So, in summary, you can decide for yourself. Is this all a little bit odd, a bit over-cutesy, maybe? I think Darlene's opinion that it's certainly not for everyone would be one I could chime with. And as she explains, I really wanted to enjoy this experience, but honestly, it felt a bit forced. When our hostess made us chant Nian Nian and do little cat paw gestures before eating, I was just not feeling it, you know? I was like, take our picture and just let me eat, okay? Yes, I think that would have been me too. But I'm glad to hear all about it. And if I do return to Tokyo, I will certainly remember this post when deciding whether or not I'm going to go and have a look for myself. So then, that's more or less it for today. I hope you've enjoyed the ride. Three very interesting travel blogs. Four travel bloggers. Thank you to Ellie and Stefan, to Marion, to Darlene. And hopefully a whole range of ideas that you found of interest whether we're talking about eating in the Far East or rally driving in London or happening upon an unexpected Spanish festival. It was all there. And yes, I can promise you much more next time when hopefully I'll find another three equally good websites to feature. Next week then, back to normal, if you like, back to the London City Break series. If you've been listening so far, you'll know that we've been already to all the big hitters, Westminster and Buckingham Palace, the Tower of London, etc., and we're in a bit of a literary interlude. Been already to Shakespeare and Chaucer's London, to the London of Charles Dickens, and next week then, an episode on Bloomsbury. Followed by a bit of a tour of some outlying areas, Greenwich, Hampton Court, Kew, that sort of thing. If you are listening along, I hope you're enjoying it. If you're not, may I suggest that perhaps you give us a try? Or that you head to the website www.citybreakspodcast.co.uk and have a browse through our other series. I've mentioned Seville and Florence and Paris, I think, already today. In addition, we have Munich, Bath, Toulouse, and St. Petersburg. 
all classy cultural cities, they all make great city breaks. And if you listen to one of our series before you go, you'll be very well informed. All the history and culture you'd research yourself if only you had the time. That's the aim. And so then I'll just finish by thanking our three guests once again for being game enough to let me snoop around their work. And thank you, of course, to everyone who's listening as well. And may I hope that perhaps we'll meet again before too long. Goodbye. Goodbye.